Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Robert Wolensky, author of Sown in Coal Country. Robert Walensky is the editor of the book Sewn in Coal Country, an oral history of the ladies' garment industry in northeastern Pennsylvania from 1945 to 1995. Why are you interested in the garment industry? Well, my mother was a garment worker, for starters. She was in the men's industry, not the women's industry, women's industry. This book is about the, uh, the, the ladies' garment industry. But uh, I and my brother and my daughter wrote a book in 2002 on that same industry and I was interviewed on PCN way back then on it and uh, we had all these oral histories we had about 40 some oral histories which I had collected because I realized that it was way back in the in the 80s that, that it was a really important story I had interviewed some people after the Agnes flood in 1972 including Min Matheson who was very active in the flood recovery she had just returned from living in New York where she worked for the ILGWU, the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union. And she was involved with the flood recovery group. And she diverged from the interview about the flood, she and her husband, Bill, to talk about the garment industry. So I went back to talk to her again. I wasn't recording then. And I pretty quickly realized as I went up there and talked to her informally again that I needed to be recording this, and she had a lot of fellow workers and owners who she could recommend, garment shop owners. So I began this oral history in the early, in 82, and uh, collected 40-some interviews, which were included in this book, co-authored by Ken Walensky, myself, and my daughter, Nicole Walensky, now Nicole Civitini. Um, and uh, I had these oral histories, the, we, we, we quoted them here and we used them here, but this is our story. This is our narrative, the way historians write history. The new book, Sown in Coal Country, yeah, I edited it. You know, I'm not the author, I'm the editor. I write an introduction, I write a conclusion, but in the middle are the 16 oral histories that I've edited and put in shape so that they can be, you know, they're readable. And I'm glad I did because we have, I only chose 16. I did more interviews. I had a total of 63 in the meantime. So there's still a lot of interviews that could be, could be used. There could probably be four or five volumes of Sewn in Coal Country. But this would be, these were the 16 that I chose, my decision to choose them. I edited them, um, and, and uh, Penn, State, Penn State decided to publish the book in January 20, uh, 2020. Now, it's an oral history, and usually we think that that's just about recording people telling their stories. Is there a, an academic approach to oral history that, that's, that's part of the discipline? Yeah, definitely. And, and oral history has come on within the history profession and, and anthropology and sociology as well uh, as a bona fide research methodology. There are a lot of things in the written record which historians have historically used, you know, minutes of, uh, of meetings and archives. 
How many times have you been in a, in, in a meeting when the person taking notes is told, don't put this down, keep this off the official record? Um, and then you, you speak to someone about their experiences and you learn things that you wouldn't get from a meeting. Furthermore, this book deals also with organized crime because organized crime became involved with the Wyoming Valley garment industry. And again, the book is focused only on the Wyoming Valley, uh, Wilkes-Barre and Pittston and Nanticoke around the, in and around those cities. Uh, and and y y there's not much of a record, <laughs> that many minutes from meetings about organized crime. So you get that from garment workers who were on picket lines and who confronted them and who felt, you know, fear by them, uh, propagated by organized criminals against them, intimidation. So oral history uh, gets you information that you often can't find on the, on the written record. You've got to be careful. So you've got to cross-check what you've heard. Uh, people could forget. We know that people could, uh, could twist the memory. People could color the memory. There's a whole, whole science of memory studies that have grown out of this sort of stuff. How we remember and why and how we forget. A lot of people would prefer to forget certain experiences with war, typically trauma. So it's, it's, a, it's a bona fide uh, method. I've been working with it now for, for 40 years. All of my books, uh, seven of them, have, uh, have oral histories involved. How long did it take you to conduct all these interviews? Well, I did them over the course. I mean, really, over the, over the, the last one I did was in 2018. Uh, I didn't use it in the book. I footnoted it in the book. Uh, 2018, and just started the first one in, in 1982. Uh, but I would pick away, pick away. And then again, our, this book comes out in 92. And uh, then we, I put it aside for a while and until I got an urge 10 years ago, really in 2013, you have this treasure trove of oral histories. Why don't you let these people, men and women, workers and shop owners and people who were affiliated in some way, why don't you see if you can get them to tell their own story? And I will simply be uh, sort of the, you know, the, the middleman in this. So that was the thing. It started in 2013. Did you ever have people who didn't want to talk to you? Very few. Now, a, a footnote here as well. I've conducted over 500 interviews on tape in Pennsylvania, especially northeastern Pennsylvania. I would come up here on sabbaticals. I would come up here, I say here, Wilkes-Barre uh, and, and Scranton. And I would uh, just do coal miners, a whole bunch of coal miners, a whole bunch of garment workers. I wanted to do all the mayors of Wilkes-Barre. Sports figures. We have had a lot of professional sports figures like Walt Michaels and Lou Michaels and people like this. So I have a whole sports section. And uh, there, there are actually um, seven different uh, components to the Northeastern Pennsylvania Oral and Life History Collection, which I gifted to the Eberly, Special, Eberly Family Special Collections Department at Penn State University Park. They have all the tapes, which have been digitized. Voices have been digitized. And they have the transcripts, which have been digitized. They're all in the Eberly Family Special Collections. So I, I have made oral history you know, one of my major professional
uh, preoccupations really since the first one I did in 1974 as a grad student at Penn State. So I've been at, it, at oral history you know, a long time. So, um, and of those over 500, I think it's about 550, I think only two people re refused to talk to me. Um, several haven't, didn't want to sign the release. You interview a miner who tells you all about his mining experiences and an accident and how he started it and, 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 and why he left. And at the end of the interview, you might say, would you mind signing this release so we can have a release and use this for research and education? And he'd say, no, I'm not going to sign anything. And, and so after the tape shut off, I, would, I said to this gentleman, to whom I was related, I said, well, wh why wouldn't you sign? He said, I'm, af I'm afraid that you know, somebody might take away my miner's pension. He had a black lung, a pension. And, and you, you find this among working class and poor people often who are fearful of, I, I, was, you know, I was an official person, even though I was related to him. And once he signed something, maybe I would use that against him. Miners often had that kind of fear. You had to be really careful to who, who you offend and what you do, and you don't want to make a mistake because you, you might pay for it. Well, the people you feature in your book were all part of the ladies' garment industry. Uh, let's talk about that industry. When did it come to northeastern Pennsylvania? It came to northeastern PA, first, first in Scranton, in the, in the early 30s, early to mid-30s. It started coming out of New York. There was a big strike in New York in 1933 of the garment workers who were already organized in the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union. I will, I will say ILGWU from, from, from now on in this interview. And uh, they, they got better terms. They got higher pay. Uh, they, 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 got, they gained a lot in 1933. And so the companies, the big manufacturing houses in New York who did a lot of their own sewing, called that inside work. They started subcontracting to small shops. We'll call that outside work. And the small shops, um, at first, they weren't too keen on the union. The big shops were already unionized. The ILGWU was formed in New York City in 1900, one of the early, early unions. And it, was, it, it grew after a series of strikes and events uh, in, in the early, early part of the 20th century. So these subcontractors who were smaller, I mean, they could have 100 or 200, but a lot of them had 50 or 75 workers doing little, little jobs for the big manufacturers who maybe had, couldn't, couldn't do some of this work in-house because they were booked. Or they knew they could get it cheaper from this, this subcontractor over here you know, in Brooklyn or somewhere. Well, the ILGWU went after the subcontractors and organized them. So then... The subcontractors start coming to re remote areas in, let's call it, the hinterland of New Jersey and, and, and New York and Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania was a prime destination because northeastern Pennsylvania was a prime destination, particularly so because the mines were going down already in the 30s. Anthracite began to decline really in the late 20s after a major strike in 1925-26, ruined several uh, consumer markets. The, the, the Great Depression began in northeastern PA in the late 20s, and then the stock market crash of 1929 worsened it and continued so. So when these um, entrepreneurs 
came out from New York with their, with their contracts in hand. They set up shops all over Northeastern PA, Scranton first, and then Wilkes-Barre. And they were making, you know, clothing and making money because they were non-union shops. They wanted to keep the ILG out. The ILG office in New York under David Dubinsky was the president. We have pictures of him in the book. Uh, he and his colleagues said, we can't have this, so we're going to organize northeastern Pennsylvania. So they sent in organizers. Uh, and one of the organizers they sent in in 1945 was Min Matheson. She had, had a, a, a short career in the garment industry. She was a sewer from Chicago originally. She was quite a radical. She belonged to the Young Communist League as a, as a, a late teenager, early early 20s, fiery, charismatic, and, and knew how to organize and knew how to lead. So she comes there in 1945 with her husband, Bill. He becomes the state director of education. She becomes the district manager of the Wyoming Valley District. When she arrives, Phil, maybe 600, 800 women in six unionized, eight unionized garment shops. The rest were all non-union shops. And they were being, women were being exploited. They were working long hours for very low pay. They wouldn't pay you for the first month or something like this because they had to train you when many of the women already knew how to, how to, how to sew. But there has to be a training period of two weeks or a month or something like this where you, where you got a really substandard wage or nothing. So men organized the shops. By the time she left the area in 1963, there were 168 unionized shops and 11,000 members just in the Wyoming Valley. Similar organizers in Scranton, Hazleton, Pottsville. I, some of the speakers in here talk about those other locations. And as with New York, who follows the industry out as shop owners? Organized crime. So. Uh Let's talk about some of these different shops. You mentioned that they were contracting out, but you also used the term jobbers. What's the difference between the contractors and the jobbers? Yeah, again, there's, there, are, there are the, um, it's, 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 it's the, the garment manufacturing system uh, whereby retailers, you know, you know JCPenney doesn't make its own clothes. Occasionally it might be, that's a new, a new trend. You could direct from the, from a, from, a, from a subcontractor, but for the most part, JCPenney or, or Sears and Roebuck or whatever the big houses were, Macy's, they would go to the, to the manufacturers who, um, who, who had labels to give us this line of clothes. We'd, we'd buy 1,000 to 10,000 dresses, okay, for our stores. Well, the manufacturer would, make the, would manufacture the clothes, as I say, inside, but they would also subcontract. Now, the jobbers come in because the jobbers would work with the manufacturers to secure contracts out of the area for the subcontractors. So the subcontractors, uh, Ann Will Garment in Kingston, would deal with a jobber who was in turn dealing with a manufacturer. So the jobber was another middleman, so to speak. <laughs> um, and of course, the, the subcontractors would out, would outbid each other. You know, they, they, they for a penny a penny a, a garment you can it makes the difference. So it was a really really cutthroat business, and the union helped allay some of that 
by standardizing wage rates, by, um, by training women, uh, by improving the product and, and so forth. Yeah, so, so jobbers were, were important as it expanded out of New York City. And by the way, it did the same thing, uh, you know, out of Chicago and other other places. So, were the factories that were in in this region were they managed locally or were they managed from New York? No, they were managed locally. Um, the uh, these entrepreneurs, so-called runaway shop owners, they ran away from New York. They came to Scranton and Wilkes-Barre and Hazleton and Pottsville, and Shimokin and a lot of other places as small entrepreneurs. Relatively small, as I said, not a lot of employees. A, a, a Two hundred would be would be really good size, uh, and they managed their shops. Uh, but they had to deal with their jobber, and occasionally they would get a, you know, a contract directly from, from a, from manufacturer. But that was rare. Leslie Fay, was was one exception to a lot of this. Leslie Fay was in New York and it came to the Wyoming Valley and set up its main center. They had 2,000 workers at Leslie Fay, and Leslie Fay had six of its own subcontracting shops in the Wyoming Valley area. So if it got overworked with inside work, it, would, it was sent out to its own shops, okay, which were 50, 50 60, 40 people. Le, uh, uh, Leslie Fay was quite unique, and Leslie Fay left in 95. It was a terrible shock to the community. Um, and, and, um, and, and there was a big strike about it, and it, it was like the last chapter. That's why this book ends in 1995. It ends with the Leslie Fay strike, and the industry is, is just decimated, you know, with going as a result of exports of, of jobs and imports of, of, garment and, of garment products. So check your clothing. In the U.S., you know, we have to label our clothing as to where it was made. This is not true of the European Union, for example, not true of Britain. But here you, gotta, you have to put where it's made and look at your shirts and your blouses and your dresses and you're going to find very little made in the United States. We import, nobody imports more clothing than the United States. Uh, and that, all that stuff used to be made here. But starting in the, really in the 80s and 90s, uh, the investments all went overseas. Now, when the, this industry came into the region, it employed a large number of women in, in, uh, in yeah. its factories. Was that a change from what had gone before in, in the Wyoming Valley? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a very traditional place, as mining communities typically are all over the world. Uh, show me a mining community, and I'm going to show you a fairly traditional place which adheres to traditional gender roles, for example, marital responsibilities, for example, men being the providers. And since northeastern PA was populated by immigrants in the mining industry, beginning with the British in the 1830s and 40s and 50s, and then the Germans coming in around that time, but after the Civil War, the Poles, the Italians, the Ukrainians, the Slovaks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, they, especially the Europeans, southern and eastern Europeans, but also the British and Germans, very traditional. Women were home. Women cooked. They worked inside the home, with some exceptions. But when the mining went down, the family really had no choice because there was no income. And as you may know, the United States is a very, very weak welfare state to this day. I mean, G Germany had a welfare state in the 1870s with, with pensions, retirement pensions. We don't get it until Social Security in 1935. 
and, and health care comes in. We, we still don't have national health care. So, so uh, the wives had to go to work, and this changed family dynamics, let me tell you. Because the women, as the book clearly indicates, became prominent. They became not just prominent, you know, at making clothing, but they got prominent in the, they became prominent in the community. Because Min Matheson, as their leader, really built a social movement of empowerment whereby they were a political force. Dan Flood, the congressman from up there for many years, would always say that he owed his elections to Min's girls. You have you have 11,000 workers, and they, they all have family members, big family members. Maybe there's five or six in the family. It's a lot of votes. And they, and they voted. And men had rallies, and she had educational programs, and they went up to, to Unity House in the Poconos, which was their resort, the ILG National Resort. And they, Harry Truman came in, Eleanor Roosevelt came in, all for political education. She was huge on political education, and so was her husband, Bill. So women are running for school board, and they're running for, for city council. In the city of Pittston, Phil, in the, in the 19, early, early to mid-50s, women couldn't vote, and that's clear in the book. Women couldn't vote. They registered to vote. They went into the, in, to, to, to the voting uh, a precinct to vote. They got a ballot, and they handed it to their man, who went in to behind the curtain with them and cast their ballot. Now, the man was usually the husband. There are stories about it could have been a boss, you know, a, a garment boss. And when Min Matheson and the other ILG leaders said, you've got to be kidding me, in, in, in 1953 and 1954, you can't vote in Pittston? Well, we, we vote, but our man votes for us. Well, we'll see about that. And they proceeded to change that through, it took them a couple elections. Everybody was fearful. And the husbands had to go along with this uh, because they could pay for their wife casting her own ballot. And in a small town, in a traditional community, what sociologists call a Gemeinschaft, intimate face-to-face -face community, uh, there's hell to be paid if, if you violate major norms like men casting ballots. Now, this only happened in Pittston, from what we can tell. It, it could have happened in other, other mining towns, because you know the Wyoming Valley has a mining town, uh, uh, a municipality, wherever there was a, a, a colliery, a coal colliery, because that mining company wanted to have its own local government, its, its, own, its own town. So we have uh, you know, dozens of, of, of uh, Pennsylvania I think, this, does this state have more municipalities than any state, maybe except for Illinois or something like that? I forget the exact statistics. But this state is known for its multiple municipalities. Uh, they tried to consolidate them in the Wyoming Valley in 1958, and it, it failed. It failed. Scranton did consolidate much earlier. So, yeah, uh, they, broke that, they broke that barrier in Pittston, and uh, there were consequences. People lost jobs over it, and people suffered, but they kept coming. They kept coming. Now, the, we're talking about the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union, and it represented mostly women workers. Who managed it? Well, the ILGWU was founded in New York City in 1900, as I've said, and the, the president as of 1933 was David Dubinsky, former garment worker, Russian immigrant, 
uh, Min's, Matheson's family were Russian immigrants. A lot of the garment workers were immigrants, Russian and, 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 and German, and, and then the, the Italians, the Poles come in again after the Civil War. A lot of Jewish influences in the ILGWU. Dubinsky was Jewish. Min was born, born Jewish, but she, she rejected that religion. Um, she was an atheist. Uh, so was Bill, her husband, Bill Matheson. He was a Scotsman from Canada, a brilliant man, brilliant speaker. He, he was her strategist. He, he would strategize all this stuff, and she would kind of carry it out. He'd write, he'd write her speeches, for example. But um, multi-ethnic in New York, multi-multi-ethnic. I mean, British, you know, Irish, multi-ethnic. And um, Dubinsky, who was Jewish, and a lot of the top officers were Jewish, they ran it from New York, and, and they, were, they, were, they were quite determined to keep this union one of the premier unions in the country. There was also a men's union, a whole other, other union, the Amalgamated, and, and that had its own operation. But the women's, I mean, it was a, it was a huge union. Over a, over a couple hundred thousand people belonged to that, you know, by the, by the late 30s. Well, let's talk about some of the people in the book. Uh, one of the figures that, that, uh, whose interview you include is Clem Lyons. Who is she? Clementine Lyons went by the name Clem. Min Matheson would pick women and some men off the production line. She'd get to know them. And she'd talk to them and ask them some questions. Maybe they were a, a floor lady. They, they were kind of the union steward in a shop. And she'd talk to them and she visited shops constantly. And she'd sense something. This person has potential as a business agent for the union. Take them out of the shop, put them on the union side as a, an organizer. Or, and that was Clem. She immediately realized that Clem Lyons was a fiery, well-organized, savvy woman. She didn't know that Clem had a tremendous voice, singing voice. And Clem, Clem eventually takes over the ILGWU chorus. Men in the ILGWU believe that you don't just belong to a union for wages and benefits. At a bowling league, chorus, with shows all the time. They had, uh, again, a, a unity house in the Poconos for a vacation or for an, an educational program. They had meetings all the time. They went to Harrisburg and in Washington for lobbying, political lobbying. I mean, it was, it's what's called social unionism. Okay, and so um, I, I, Clem was was the person in the chorus. Uh, they had a, a piano player who also participated quite a bit. I interviewed him, uh, but but uh, uh, Clem was she was feisty, I mean, and the interview shows how feisty she was. Once intimidated by a guy who threatened to go home and come back with a gun and blow her head off. This is in the book, and she said, "Well, you just go ahead and do that. I'll be right here waiting for you." So somebody, this guy left. Somebody overheard the conversation and came back to Clem and said, Clem, he's serious. This guy could do it. He said, she said, you know, you're his friend. He's not my friend. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show him that I'm not afraid of him. So he came back, and in the, in the interview, Clem says, he came back, you know, with his tail between his legs, and he was going to do a darn thing to me. And he said, and if he would have, I would have just slapped him right across the puss. She's that kind of earthy, tough Irish woman, 
and she, she prided herself in being Irish. She mentioned that a couple of times in the interview. Now, one of the things that she says there, which uh, I thought was interesting, uh, she's talking about a rural loser in county, and she says, and, quote, and of course, that's Ku Kluxer territory out there. Yeah. People raise hell with me even today for saying Ku Kluxers, but that's the truth. Ku Kluxers were always active out there in the back mountains. Uh, what, did, what do you see about this region from these small interviews like that when you find these types of details? We, we found it in the mining, on the mining side, too, in our books on mining, because we did a lot of interviews with mining and incorporated them in other books like Anthracite Labor Wars, for which I interviewed on this on, on PCN 10 years ago with my co-author, Bill Hasty, who recently passed away at age 101. But um, I'm from the Back Mountain. I was born in, in Swearville in the valley, but I was raised in the, the Back Mountain just five, five miles out or three miles out. What happened, Phil, was that all these immigrants who came in, <laughs> this will sound familiar, who came in after the Civil War, again, the Eastern and Southern Europeans, threatened those who were here, mainly British, and keep in mind that the Irish were British until the 1920s, when they, got, when they broke off a little bit, and the Germans. And um, there, was, there were great worries about, they're Catholic for one thing, all these new immigrants, for the most part. <clears throat> they have big families. They don't speak English. They live in, in ghettos. And they're, they're quite undesirable, quite undesirable. And uh, here, comes the, here comes the KKK uh, in Luzerne County. There's a great book on this uh, called Shirts and Hoods by, um, by a, a professor from Penn State named Jennings. In fact, he's going to speak at Anthracite History month next January about his book, Shirts and Hoods. He's got a whole section on Luzerne County. Yeah, the, the Claverns, Pennsylvania in the 1930s had, uh, had, I think, second most Claverns, they call them, local clubs of any place in the country. Well, what were they motivated by? Well, motivated by what we see in places like Hazleton recently. Immigrants, the threat of immigrants is so ironic that many of the citizens of Hazleton's ancestors were treated exactly like they're treating the Hispanic immigrants in Hazleton. It's a famous case, and I know you've, you've, you've dealt with it on this, on this program at some point. So the KKK was the protection. I mean, I've got people who watched the parade of KKKers, a few hundred of them, up Wyoming Avenue in, 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 in Forty Fort and Kingston. Um, in, in the 1930s. I have a great oral history on that. Someone, a young girl, she watched it as a, as a teenager, and, and, it, and it's quoted in, in the book. They, they were, um, it, was, it was fear. It was fear of the unknown and fear of, these, fear of these Catholics. And one other thing about this, I guarantee you, if you are Polish or, or Ukrainian or Greek or Portuguese, your, your grandparents or your ancestors came here sometime, most likely, between the 1870s and the 1920s, because in 1920s, the U.S. Congress passed three anti-immigration laws to keep out what the New York Times referred to as these rattlesnakes from Eastern and Southern Europe who are ruining the country, all right? Italians were among those, of course, and organized crime was a problem, and, 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 and that, was, that, that was big news back, back in the 20s, as you may, may remember. So um, we shut the door in 1920s to um, these immigrants, and we didn't open the door until after World War II. 
So with, with some exception, uh, the, the, the racist issue in the U.S., you must remember that in 1910, there was a Jewish race and a Polish race and a French race and an Italian race and a Welsh race. That's how we spoke. The, the English never thought that the Irish were white. There's a great book on this called How the Irish Became White. Were Jews white? No. Were Italians white? Maybe in the north, but not in the south. That's how we thought, really. And whites becomes a category in the 1950s. That's all. That's how, that's how old whites are, to include all those immigrants who came over, you know, after the Civil War. Uh, 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 and it, they came about, the historians, historians have found out, in response to the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s, because African Americans were, seemed to be making gains. And a lot of the white immigrant working class, you know, the typical construction worker, felt slighted. And so we get, we get Michael Novak writing about the unmeltable ethnics, you know, the unmeltable whites. Um, so being white, and it's, it's called the whiteness literature. Who's white has been redefined in this country over the past 150 years? Now, another figure you talk about in the book is Angelo Di Pasquale, and, and you describe him as the union's official tough guy. Why did the union need a tough guy? Yeah, Rusty Di Pasquale, Min gave me his name. She said, he might talk to you. One time there was a picket line in Pittston, and uh, Min was on the picket line in, in a strike, and the policeman grabbed her and, and put her arm behind her to kind of detain her, and he was really hurting her. And she said, let go, let go. And he wouldn't let go. And then suddenly, a man came from across the street, and uh, he let go. And when he let go, he swung around, and he knocked this guy's gun out of his hands. Because the guy had stuck a gun in the cop's back, and the cop felt it. And that man who stuck the gun in the, in the, uh, in the policeman's back was, was Rusty or Angelo Di Pasquale. He was a miner, a coal miner. And he, his, his girlfriend was a, was a garment worker, and he had great respect for the, any union. He was a union man, I, UMWA, United Mine Workers, and then he respected the garment workers, and he really got to like men. And she brought him on. She wanted to know who this guy was. She found him. She talked to him. And he, she brought him in as an organizer, and I, I would like to say also as an enforcer. Uh, they were dealing with organized crime. And Rusty was fearless. So was Min. But Rusty was fearless. And he had his boys. He had three or th two or three other guys who he, he had known for, for his whole life who would do, his, do what he said, do bidding. You know, there was a shop down the line. It was non-union. And it doesn't look like it's a mob shop. We've got to be careful here. Uh, I want you to go down there and tell them to get the hell out of town. I want them out by tomorrow, or else they'll be held to pay. Now, men would never condone this. New York would never condone this. But that's the kind of stuff that went on, and, and that shop was gone. He mentions it in his oral history. So he was a character. I mean, he, he shot, he tried to shoot the tires out of a truck going up um, uh, uh, toward New York, you know, uh, up toward uh, uh, Mount Itford up that way. And uh, that was the way to New York back then. This, this, would, have been, this would have been in the, uh, in, in the 50s. He missed the truck. Uh, the truck kept going, didn't get the tires. When he gets back to Wilkes-Barre, 
David Dubinsky calls Min, the president calls Min and said, what are you guys trying to do, shooting, shooting at a truck? It was a mafia truck. It was a shop in Edwardsville owned by Three Finger Brown, Tommy Lucchese, who was the head of the Lucchese family in New York. He had a shop in Edwardsville. Uh, and he had a shop also in Sweet Valley as well, the, the rural area. And that's where the KKK was always very active out in the, the Knox and Sweet Valley out that area. Uh, but yeah, um, so Rusty, Ru Rusty, Rusty could be counted on to intimidate. And Min would always tell him not to, not to back, not to do it, back off, back off, back off. But I, I know that she appreciated what he did too. So what types of techniques did Min Matheson use? Uh, did, were there regular strikes? Did, did, was she negotiating with, uh, uh, with shop owners? Well, she couldn't, she couldn't, she could negotiate when they, when they weren't paying the proper rate because they had union contracts signed out of New York for union for certain rates, half a penny for this, this item or a penny and a half for this one, zippers, you got more for zippers. They had all, a thousand different rates and they had them in a book called the Bible. Uh, and sometimes these guys would cheat. And the, and, and the worker would come to Min and say, listen, I'm, I'm not getting a proper rate for, for doing this, this, these, uh, these buttons. And so she'd go in and she'd try to convince him through negotiations that this is the rate. Everybody else paying it, why aren't you paying it? She was very persuasive, very persuasive. Excellent speaker. And if he persisted, she would call the shop out. She'd just say, okay, girls. Everybody out. And, and, and he'd say, what are you doing, man? What are you doing? You, well, I'm sorry. You, you, you look like you're not going to do anything ab about this. I don't know who else is not getting the proper rate because only one person has told me this. But if one person said it, we're going to close your shop down. So pretty soon he'd be negotiating with her and, and, they, would, and, and they would do it. <laughs> one time she had a, a battle with a guy over the bathroom. He said the girls were going in the bathroom too much. So he closed the bathroom. Shop with about 60 people, 70 people. So he said, you have to open that bathroom. What do you expect women to do? He said, no, they're hanging out in there. So he said to the girls, I want you to stand up one by one and punch out. Let's go. Ding, ding, ding. He said, man, you can't do this. I got orders. He said, ding. He said, open the, open the bathroom. Ding, ding. He was going, going bananas. So finally, after maybe about 20 20, 30 dings. Okay, okay, we'll open the bathroom. But you talk to the girls and tell them not to dally in there, which some of them were probably doing, as a matter of fact. And, uh, so that kind of theater like that. She, she, wanted, he, she wanted him to hear, the, you know, the, the punch, the punch ding, the punch out ding. So did the workers know which shops were owned by organized crime? Was oh, it yeah. just kind of a known thing? Yeah, they, listen, the, the minority of shops, of those 168 in the Wyoming Valley, 168 shops, unionized garment shops. And by the way, there were probably 12 non-unionized garment shops that were not mob-affiliated, men could never get, mainly because the owners treated the workers extremely well. One made bathing suits that I, that were on, on, right off Market Street in, uh, in, in Kingston. Um, but... In, in the city of Pittston, which was the seat of organized crime, there were probably 20 shops run by organized crime, owned by organized crime. And the girls knew who they were. Then Nick Alimo's shop, shop, Angelo Chandra's shop, Russ Buffalino's. I mean, they, they knew who, who, who these guys were. 
And, and some of them worked for him. I mean, you know, because some of them were decent bosses, but they would never allow the union in. They would try to compensate you in other ways. They would, okay, you go home early today because your, your child's sick. Or you can take a, a machine home with you and you can work from home, which would be against union rules. Maybe, you, maybe, you're, maybe you're sick, in, but you could do some work at night at home. So, so the mob's shops would, would be very flexible, and they'd give them turkeys at dinner, you know, at, at, at Christmas, I should say, for dinner. And, and so they had their ways, and a lot of them were related, cousins. It was mainly Sicilians and Italians. Uh, they, they were very, they were, there was a lot of family in, in the mob-owned shops, but not, not the majority either, but, but a lot of family. And, and if you worked at the shop for five or ten years and, and you got a decent wage and you felt good, well, you, you, you stayed there even though the shop up the road had a, had a higher wage and a pension. But if you went up the road to that shop, if you turned union, everybody in the shop would know you did, including the owner. And, and then again, in a small town like that, you, you, you don't want to do that. You, you, you're seen as a, you know, as a deviant in some way. Okay. So, yeah, but the, the city of Pittston, 20 shops, and there were, there were three, four, times, four times that of other shops in the Pittston area that were not mob-affiliated. But I want to talk about this. It was uncovered through research uh, by, uh, by um, David Whitwer, who I think you've had on this program from Harrisburg, Penn State, Harrisburg. He found documents indicating that in the, in the 19... I believe it was 40s. The ILGWU in New York uh, could have been early 50s. Made a deal with the mob. I mean, they know who the mob was. I mean, everybody knows who they were. They were in the New York industry going way back to the to the 20s. We're going to give organized crime 33 shops in Pennsylvania, in northeastern Pennsylvania: Pittston, Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, Sweet Valley. Hazleton and probably Pottsville. We're going to give those to you, says David Dubinsky was in on this and his lieutenants. But you give us the rest. We're not going to bother your 33 shops. But we want the rest, which, you know, there were, there were you know, a thousand shops in, the, in those areas. Well, not quite a thousand. Men didn't know about this deal. No one knew about this deal. None of those district managers, Johnny Justin, who's in the book, managed down in Pottsville. He didn't know about it. The folks in Scranton, uh, 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 Grasso, not in the book. He didn't know about it. But the mob knew about it. And Min could never understand why she couldn't get more cooperation from New York and, and why she couldn't crack certain mob-owned shops. They would close down rather than accept the union. She'd have strikes there for a year at the Jenkins Sportswear owned by Russ Buffalino. Never cracked it. They finally shut it down and sold it. And the new guy who came in adopted the union. There was also a federal law which said, I should mention this, it's in the book, it's a federal law that said if, if the um, manufacturer in New York is unionized, and they almost all were, the subcontractors have to be unionized. There's a special provision in American labor law. It's pro-union, of course. You could probably never get a law like that passed today, but they got it passed back then. And, um, but some subcontractors, like organized crime, they, they still would not subscribe by that, still would not subscribe. So the, the union, you know, cooperated 
it's what we call the upper world cooperating with the underworld, and it happens a lot. I mentioned it in the last chapter. Banks, corporations, police forces, universities, unions, they often, their upper world, their respectable institutions, the upper world, often cooperate with the underworld. And someone said that the underworld could never exist without cooperation from the upper world. And, and, and the, these, guys, the, these guys get away with it all the time. These guys don't. Now, something that was mentioned in uh, some of these uh, uh, interviews that you conducted was the Appalachian meeting in New York. What, what was that? Why was this significant? Well, the meeting in, in Appalachia in 1957 was, it was a confab of organized criminals from throughout the country. There had been a lot of violence in New York, you know, um, <clears throat> in organized crime, the five families in New York, one of which was Lucchese, I've already mentioned, Three Finger Brown. And they met up at, uh, at Joe, uh, Joe Barbara's place. He had, he had been in Wilkes-Barre before. And it was his country, it was his country retreat, country home ma mansion. And they came from all over the country to, to, to settle a lot of the violence and kind of carve up territories. And, and, and a large number of people who, who were there, especially from the Wyoming Valley, were involved with the garment industry. Russ Buffalino was there. Nicolaimo was there, for example. Angelo Chandra was there. And so um, the, the place was raided by the state police. See all these Cadillacs around this home. Is what's going on here? You know, we don't usually have. They were coming in. You could see them on the street of this small New York State town. And so they they raided the place and and arrested a lot of people. And many people fled to the woods, including Dominic Alimo. Uh, his his uh, his factory is on the cover of Sonin Coal Country. Not him, but but the but the women. The five women striking his shop. I, I, he's the one mobster I spoke to. I did actually interview Dominic Alimo, the only one that would talk to me. And he'd said nothing at all. He just denied and it was a wasted interview. And it, it could not be taped. That was one of his stipulations. Uh, he was also implicated. He went to jail because he was in the mine workers union as well. And he, he, um, he took bribes and that helped cause the Knox mine disaster of 1959. But that's another story. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, that, that, that's, you know, the, the New York was, was, the ILGWU was definitely a, a, a culpable in, 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 in enabling the mob to, to do what it did. And it's unfortunate. So, I mean, Matheson worked in this region for a long time, uh, but at some point the industry begins to decline. Uh, why was it declining? Well... The garment industry left the U.S. and people would like to say, well, because labor got too expensive. That may be part of the story. Or they'll say, well, because the unions. The unions drove up prices and labor got expensive. But another major factor was it was part of U.S. government geopolitical strategy coming out of the State Department, coming out of the U.S. Congress, coming out of the White House, we wanted to keep people in our sphere of influence. It was the Russians and it was us. They were the two big spheres of influence. And to do that, we had to give them economic growth and development. You know, we're a reliable ally. You can, you can have growth if you ally with us. For example, we'll, we'll export garment manufacturing to you, and then you can... You, you can uh, 
you can export it back to us. So the door was open. I mean, NAFTA was, was a perfect example of this in 1992, the North American Free Trade Agreement, signed by Bill Clinton, drafted by George Bush I, but the Congress wouldn't pass it. It passed under Bill Clinton, whereby um, goods can be imported from Mexico um, and Canada duty-free. Mexico always had a garment industry but, and, and, and a shoe industry, but if you import those goods, you have to pay a stiff tariff. Why? To protect American jobs. That's why. Of course they can make shirts or pants down there more cheaply, but we want to protect. Well, with NAFTA, that was off. That, that social contract was broken. And you pay a garment worker in Mexico in, in, in a day what you pay a garment worker in, in, in Kingston, Pennsylvania in an hour. And there are no benefits. Pensions, health care, vacation. So here goes the garment industry to Mexico and then to China. And, and the whole thing is to say, well, you know, you, you have a piece of our pie. And so you have to be in our sphere of influence. And that was done with a lot of it. Shoes, as I mentioned, was done with shoes. Oh, you name it, umbrellas. I mean, you, you go down the list of the things that we import, especially from China in the last 20 years. But now Middle East, you know, the garments being made. Pakistan is huge. Bangladesh is huge. I bought a shirt from Ukraine. Walensky is a Ukrainian name from my grand grandfather who came over in 1912 as a, as a, he came over as a, to work in the mines. So, um, yeah, that's that's one of the real one of the real concerns is is it was not just a matter of wages. It was a matter of the U.S. government encouraging this. First, at first, the companies resisted it. This is in chapter my last chapter. The companies resisted it and the union. They cooperated with the ILG and the and the, the men's amalgamated to uh, to stop the export of all of our jobs. The companies failed and the unions failed and the companies finally said, okay, so we're going to set up a factory in Mexico. We're going to set up a factory in Taiwan. We're going to set up a factory in Colombia, South America. It's the law. We can do it and we'll make much more money by doing it. And what about the workers back home? We've been with you for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. It's a cruel world. It's a cruel world. So did the union achieve its main goals? In the short run, absolutely. In the short run, it gave these women and men, cutters were usually men, they would, they would cut, cut the pattern, spread out the cloth. I worked as a spreader for Pioneer Manufacturing in Wilkes-Barre one, one, uh, one semester break. You spread out the cloth on these spikes, which holds them very tightly, and you put a pattern, paper pattern on top of a, of, a, of a blouse, let's say, and that cutter comes in and, and he zips, he zips that like, like nobody's business, as they used to say. And um, <clears throat> that's, a, that's a highly skilled, highly skilled uh, uh, a situation. Good wages. Cutters got top wages. They were mainly men, but uh, it was also a factor with cutting. I don't, I don't know of one woman cutter, but there probably was one. And um, they had benefits and they had unity house and they had representation you couldn't push workers around and politically you know they were a force to be reckoned with you you don't want to get the ILGWU angry at you because they may not vote for you and then they branched out I mean they had meetings where they passed motions against strip mining 
at, 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 a, at a district union meeting. They got involved with politics and, and other kinds of stuff. They really felt empowered. As Min said, we gave them status. And these women who maybe only went to high school or less became a force within the community. How do these communities in Northeast Pennsylvania remember the garment industry and the union today? Well, there's a historical marker on Public Square in downtown Wilkes-Barre. My brother Ken Walensky was instrumental <clears throat> in proposing that to Min Matheson and Bill Matheson's mention, um, put up in 1999, prominently on the square. There's a garment workers, this is a public PHMC marker, typical state of PA marker. Another one in downtown Pittston put up, I want to say, maybe 15 years ago. A prominent. This, this one's to the garment workers of Pittston. Uh, Pittston, again, was a major garment center. Um, and I was at, happened to be at both of those inaugurations. I was in town for both of them. And they were very moving. The chorus, the chorus was at the one for men with Clem Lyons leading it. And these women were then all in their 70s, but still put on a great show and sang. Um, uh, and so it's, it's that. It's our books, public talks. But frankly, um, I, I don't, I think the Scranton Anthracite Museum has, does have a, a garment display up there. They also have displays of silk. You know, women worked in a silk mill in northeastern PA. I review all that the women worked in in the first chapter, my introductory chapter in that book. Thousands of women worked in the silk mills, knitting mills. So garment wasn't the, weren't, weren't the first, uh, you know, uh, in, industry to come in and I, I use the word take advantage of. Someone might say provide job opportunities for women. Uh, I think the, the museum in Scranton, the Anthracite Museum, great museum in Scranton, they have a display, a small display on the garment workers, but there's no, there's no museum for the garment workers in northeastern Pennsylvania. So of the people in the book, is there anyone that is, who is your favorite or whose story is really funny to you or interesting to you? I've got a lot of favorites. We mentioned R Rusty De Pasquale. He was such a character. He swore. I put his, I put his swear words in there. They weren't, they weren't uh, you know, that bad, so they stayed in. Uh, he was such a character. Um, Tony, Tony D'Angelo, uh, an incredible story about how he helped torch a garment factory. It's owned by the mobster Angelo Chandra, who I mentioned. And one Saturday, Angelo Chandra said to him, uh, I want you to take all these, all these dresses off these hooks and, and, and take all these sewing machines um, out of here, ex except for the heads, and he torched the whole place. He wanted the insurance money. And Angelo said, on tape, in the book, transcribed. Uh, I didn't really kind of know what was going on. I was young. I, I just did what I was told. I had already been fired once by Angelo Shander, and he brought me back. And, and the great irony of the whole story is that they took the dresses, except for the belts. They want to leave the belts because they would, they would be there after a big fire. The dress was disintegrate, supposedly. The dresses... And, and, and the sewing machines up to the Yatesville, which is a suburban Pittston community, police station. They put all this stuff in the basement of the police station. And that's an extraordinary tale. 
and and Tony is Tony's not kidding about it. So I had a lot of favorites. Min was a favorite. Her daughter Betty Greenberg is the last chapter. Uh, Betty had a tr has a tremendous memory. She was on the picket line with her mom as a young girl, and she gave us a really strong, you know, fill in a lot of the gaps in, in Betty Greenberg's interview. Well, we've been speaking with Robert Walensky. He is the editor of the book Sewn in Coal Country, an oral history of the ladies' garment industry in northeastern Pennsylvania, 1945 to 1995. Thank you for joining me. Glad to be here, Phil. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.